Welcome to Trashy Divorces in kind of a special, grittier, cozier way than normal. In an REM kind of way. REM, jangly. Our song this week, Driver 8, early REM, released in 1985, originally on Fables of the Reconstruction. Y'all, I'm a Georgia gal. And R.E.M., they are just like a lullaby. Old R.E.M. is my favorite. This one hit my ears this week with the, we can reach our destination and we're still a ways away. So that's the episode title this week. Yes, what Alicia is alluding to is that we have our live show tonight. And we realized that planning out four stories in one week was really not going to work for us. (laughs) Yeah, it was kind of a lot. So please send us a good thought about our live show tonight if you're listening on Sunday. Yeah, wish us some leg uh, breaks. And leg breaks, right? (laughs) Let's not have any. I have had so many problems. So many breaky, breaky things. Uh My arm is working again. Let's not. Okay, maybe just hold a good thought and send us some luck. That would be great. We would love that. Thank you. So this weekend, trying to create a little bit of balance, we wanted to actually show off a little bit of what we're doing on Patreon. There's a shit ton of stuff going on over there, and we are so grateful to all of our Patreon folks who have joined us. We have the just nicest, weirdest, most amazing, awesomest community over there, and kind of wanted to share it with the world. So you may have heard on our episodes about the kind of stuff that we that we post over there on Patreon, but maybe haven't gotten a chance, because some of it's public, and so maybe you haven't gotten a chance to check it out. This is your chance to check it out. If you've ever wondered if Patreon is worth supporting, play on. This is the episode <laughs> for you. If you are already a person who thinks our regular episodes might just be a little bit too gabby, this is probably not the episode for you. Patreon is cozier. It's a little bit more informal. Do yourself a favor and just turn this episode off now. Might not be for you unless you really like history and conspiracies. And then it might be the episode for you. Play on. This is Patreon, y'all. It's loose. It's very cozy. This is our dinner party salon. We're ants gossiping with you about the other side of the story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pure, unadulterated trash candy. So, Stacey, what are you bringing to the table this week from Patreon? This was so, such a fun story you did. Yeah, so we covered Princess Margaret a while. You covered Princess Margaret yeah, yeah, a while yeah. back. And one of the outgrowths of that is this very strange and still mysterious. It was very mysterious. Bank heist, the Baker Street robbery in London in 1971, where a bunch of two-bit criminals like broke into the vault at Lloyd's of London Bank and like stole 40 million pounds worth of we're not even sure because it it was it was safe deposit boxes and, and people didn't come forward to claim to make claims about what they had lost because it was private stuff like i don't know there there are all sorts of hints and rumors and allegations about like high profile people in england being involved in very shady stuff government people mi5 is somehow implicated it is a bonzo story <laughs> So get out your tinfoil hats yes. for that one. It is a super fun ride. Yeah. What do you have? Oh, what do you have for so the people? Good. The episode comes from our Trashy Tutor series. It has everything. Today we're covering Eleanor of Aquitaine. Ah, oh, was, we had so many requests for her too. So 12th century badass. Here's a rundown on the highlights. If you have a Trashy Divorces bingo card out there that you're keeping track of, we have a tiny princess with baby hands and tiny fingers for marriage oh power grabs alliances two husbands that were kings of europe 
We have troubadours. We have mother-in-laws. Also, super fun. The reason prenups are a thing. And to round it all out, because everything is rounded out better with a little West Wing. There you go. Yeah, we've been time hopping all around in Alicia's Trashy Tutor series over on Patreon. And this is an episode that aired back in May and builds to an episode that you recorded this week. Just this week about Mm -hmm. Empress Matilda. We're going to have more on her in just a second. Sure. We have a lot of names for our magic mirror this week. We do. joined us on Patreon this week. Plenty of people. And thank you all so much for joining us on Patreon. Thank you to Justy L, Elizabeth H, Debbie W, Emily M, Andrea M, Emily P, Krista D, Blair H, Melanie A, Stacey L, Kylie L, Eileen S, Brittany M, Jillian B, Grace Jenny G, Emily C, Cynthia C, Stephanie S, Kimberly P, and Carolyn S. Thank you all. Thank so y'all so much. much for supporting us over there. What did our Patreons get this week? Do a quick Whoa. rundown. You guys had so many opinions about Blake and Miranda. Woo! So we uh, had to dig into that over there for sure. And we also did a little Mystery Science Theater 3000 kind of thing, watching the death of Blake Shelton's first marriage. And the duet that Blake and Miranda did to You're the Reason God Made Oklahoma. <laughs> that was on Trashy Tidbits for Tuesday. What do we do Thursday? Oh, Yeah. We did the Kitchen Sink of an episode. We brought you the news of the Foxhole, Katie Holmes and Jamie Foxx breakup. Foxhole down! Foxhole down! down. Very sad. More dish on Bearskin Burt and Lonnie Anderson. And a little women's supporting women's story that involved Amy Sherman Palladino. Gilmore Girls. This is Maisel. Bunheads, too. Mm -hmm. Who... Sticking up for one of our past Trashy Divorces profilees, Kathy Griffin. So that was pretty cool. All right. And you do this trash astrology uh, thing over there, too. So happy birthday to Virgos. Virgos. We are so excited for your big astrological month. Thank you for organizing our worlds. We did your Virgo profile that came out also on Patreon this week with Trash Astrology. And y'all, Trashy Tutors. Mm. This week's episode covered Empress Matilda, who had the the nerve in the 12th century to try to claim power in her own right. And by the instructions left by her dad, the king, the nerve of this gal trying to be king of England. Lady king. Who ever heard of such a thing? In the Eleanor of Aquitaine story you're going to hear today, you're going to hear a little bit about Matilda as the mother-in-law from hell. However... The story that we published on Patreon this week gives a little bit more story and context on the life and times of Empress Matilda. Super good. Oh, we had one other fun thing happen on Saturday. We did release something really special. If you've ever wondered what it's like to get a psychic reading, to get a tarot card reading, we had our good friend Margot D from Book Versus Movie and Fit Bottom Girl. She's a what podcast a, what superstar, a yep. what a creep, best neighbors pod, who was our brave soul this week and opened herself up to record a tarot reading with one of my very favorite people in the world, a lady named Wanda Callahan from AtlantaPsychicReadings.com. She provided a tarot reading for Margot. So if you ever wanted to know like what that sounds like, you can get in behind the scenes over there and take a gander and a listen. It was pretty fun. It was a, we had a lot of fun on Patreon this week. There's a lot going on on Patreon this week. Please enjoy this episode. We will be back with regularly scheduled Trashy Divorces next week. Oh, I got um, some super fun trash candy coming for you next week. Cool. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. 
Stacey, you ready to take a break <laughs> and listen to some trashy divorces this week? Yep, let's go, go, go. Do it. So, Alicia, um, you have a, I don't know, a pre-tutor, trashy tutor by popular demand, English history deep cut? I have a treat for you today. A treat. Is what I have. A treat. I have a tasty, tasty pre-tutor treat. Trashy treat. Oh, it's so trashy. All right. It's good. We have been doing within trashy divorces, at least a lot of recent stories lately. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. It is cool. But you know how I feel about this. It's all spiderweb. (laughs) And history really does, I think, both repeat and run. So today we're going to time hop it back to the 12th century. And y'all, it's an exciting story. People say history can't be fun. That is poppycock and balderdash. Both. Both. Today I have the pleasure of telling you about one of the most powerful women of the 12th century. No, the most powerful woman of the 12th century. One of the most powerful figures in the 12th century. Wild ride of a life, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Hmm. Oh, it's so good. This does predate the Tudors. Yeah, by... Okay, yeah. so our best guess is that she was born in 1124. Okay. Maybe 1122. It There's some contention, but we'll right. talk about it in a second. So why do we talk about her? A, <laughs> everybody wants to hear about her. We, we have received a lot of So for all of contact. y'all who are like, come on. Get hip to the kids and do Eleanor of Aquitaine. That's that's. I exactly. got you. I got you. you hey, got millennials. We got the story you really want to hear. I don't know. Oh, you do want to hear it. No, they have an idea. You were good. You're. I don't. I don't. I don't, you, I don't know the ages of the people who emailed us. That's all. I'm. That's all I'm joking about here. You may want to just take your socks off before they get knocked off. I'm not wearing any. So <laughs> my feet are going commando. <laughs> Got my slippers on. You're not the boss of my toes. <laughs> so this does predate the Tudors. And we're going to be doing a little bit in the next episode as well that predates the Tudors. But I think in order to truly understand the Tudors, you need to know again what has come before. History does repeat. History does rhyme. It's got a sick beat and I can bug out to it. Okay, so Eleanor of Aquitaine. Let's just go ahead and say 1124. Sure. She's born in Poitiers. Poitiers, that's in France. Poitiers, it's in France. 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 And this area at the time is the center of all courtly things happening in Europe. It is chivalry and troubadours and courtly love, and it is the epicenter of that body lush court life that you think about. Okay. Thank you, Kat, for jumping on the table. We now have a podcast for our podcast. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm assuming Eleanor was a charming, bubbly, amazing little creature. You're going to love this story because there's no astrology Mm. for me to talk about because women were not important of their own historical record until they got married. So I'm convinced that Eleanor is a fire sign. Just by the way her life rolls out. Sure. Although we don't know anything about her looks or her date of birth or her hair color or her eye color. Because, again, she doesn't really exist until it's 
time for her to get married. Hmm. It is shameful. I mean, do we are there paintings of her though that survive? The only survivable thing from her is her effigy, where she is painted in death. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about that is she's holding a book in her hands. Hmm. Like we don't know about her education, but like, but she could read. She's literate. We would assume so. Like for that to be, that doesn't happen. Right. That women hold kings hold swords, but women. Uh, so I tend to think that she might have been a little scholarly. Probably a little controversial because you know women in medieval times don't read. So she is going to have eighty years of a life at a time when women had zero agency. She eighty years. Yeah, I know. I saw uh, your n- nice old age, nice nice ripe age. Don't even want to have on socks. So she is going to find some agency in the eighty years of her life. It's going to be good. It's going to be bad. It's going to be good and bad again. It is the wheel of fortune on hype. Right. Okay. When Eleanor is born, the thing you need to know about 1124 France is that it is very much divided into territories and factions. So her family is super powerful. They essentially are in charge of the entire bottom left-hand corner of France. Okay. They've got wine, river trades. They're wealthy. They rule a lot of territory. There's a lot of feuding sublords. Okay. But a lot of territory. Natural resources are good. They so, have so her, so her family is, you know, House Stark in the north. Like all of the all of the sublords like answer to them. Is that is that correct? correct her dad or? is William the Tenth. He's the king. Okay. Okay. So she's a she's a princess of Aquitaine. Her dad, William the Tenth, is so the king. So at this point, it's we don't have a unified France where we have a unified France, and that William the Tenth holds the power over. A bunch of sublords. Okay. It's the same as England. It's king of the north. King of the north. King of the southern France. Okay. <laughs> Eleanor's granddad. Here's a neat thing about him. William the ninth. You're going to like this. He is history's first recorded troubadour poet. Oh, I thought you were going to say vinegar maker because that's... No, that, but that region of France, like they make the great wines and when they spoil, they they make the great vinegar. Well, see, spider webs. All right. The Orleans method is the traditional way of making vinegar. It's known worldwide as the Orleans method. Extra, extra, the trashy divorces of vinegar is coming on Stacy's next bonus story. You're so funny. Her granddad. Yeah. First troubadour, troubadour poet. poet. Introduces this culture of song and sex and pleasure. Her dad, William the Tenth, the king, isn't quite as flamboyant. Is all of this, but that's okay. Eleanor's mom dies, and she's like six. Eleanor has a baby sister. Dad, William the Tenth, is just kind of doing it, but he has no sons. So now, dead wife, no sons. Right. Eleanor becomes a much bigger part of the political picture for dad, because mm-hmm. girls can't rule in their own right. Right, but they can be married for alliances. So when Eleanor is... 13, 15, depending on what year you think she's born. She's young. Okay. She's a middle schooler. Right. In 1137, her dad dies. And he knows he's going to die. Like, it's it's coming. And he knows he's leaving two daughters. And Eleanor's the heiress, but she can't rule on her own. So, he... So, Aquitaine is an independent... 
you know, principality or whatever yeah. would simply see, like, whoever her husband became would become the ruler. That's so fascinating. Okay. So he saddles on up to Louis the Sixth of France, which is the territory in the north. And mm-hmm. he's like, all right, Heading I guess we should. Gay Paris. Right. Go ahead and do it. And Louis the Sixth is like, wee oui, wee. Oui. I would love this land. Bonjour. Right. Wine is tasty. I, but William's dying and yeah. he's. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. I don't. Let's. I guess I'm being a little glib. Okay. Also, like. So at 13, Eleanor is now marrying the heir to the French throne, Louis VII. They're married in Bordeaux. So they're married in the South, which is unusual because typically all weddings take place in Paris. But Louis comes down to Bordeaux with an entourage. They get married. They are an hour done with that wedding where the news comes in that Louis the Sixth has kicked it. What? And now Louis the Seventh is king of France. Wait, so she's been married an, an hour, hour when she's suddenly the queen of France? Yep. At the age of 13 or 15? Yep. Oh, my God. Yep. Okay. So she doesn't even have time to... Uh, like, we haven't even fucked yet, dude. Like... It's crazy pants, and it's an arranged marriage, and her, of course she's going to do it dutifully. Sure. But now she's the queen of France. They head on back to Paris. Louis VII, Eleanor will describe as more of a monk than a man. He's kind of mild and kind of meek. And oh, let me mention her mother-in-law, Adelaide. Adelaide is now the Dowager Queen of France, and she has absolutely not one sliver of intention of retiring, (laughs) which Dowager Queens normally do. Right. And did I mention that she hates her new daughter-in-law? No. So, yay. Eleanor does not have a lot of luck with mother-in-laws in in her life, as we'll find out. So, Eleanor has all this land and a lot of money, but... It's all now signed over to Louis the Sixth, right, so right. she has zero control and agency over the power that she has brought to this. But one job of her being an heiress, marrying into another noble family, is done, and she sure has taken the fast track to queen. But she has one more job to do as queen. What is that? I was oh, uh, any guesses? Have a have a baby boy. That's exactly right. Spawn. She does have spawn. Produce spawn. It takes eight years. Well, that's okay, though. That puts her at the ripe old age of like 22. (laughs) Takes eight years. And she delivers a very healthy, happy, amazing baby girl. You got it. Ah, damn it. Don't these women learn. In 1149, Louis VII and Eleanor decide that having a baby was so much fun. Let's go ahead and do some other stupid things. Sorry, that's not having children is not stupid, but what they're about to do now is super stupid. Okay. They decide to join the Crusades. Oh, boy. So they are going to represent the Christian West Wait, battling. They're, the, the king and queen of France are personally going to hop off to yeah. the Holy Lands yep, to yep. Yep, fight yep. horses. Wow. The whole nine. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Different times, man. Fight the Muslim East for control of Jerusalem and the Holy Land. Sure. Y'all. We've got thunder in the background. That's what that sound is. It is thunder in the background. Sorry, y'all. Stormy Sunday. The Tudor gods are mad. Why are you not talking about us, yo? 12th century bullshit. Okay, so hold on. 
they're off on crusades. Like this is the real deal flags, ponies traveling across multiple countries that are not yours. Right. Dangerous crusades. They don't go all that great. (laughs) And in this time, they travel back to Poitiers, her homeland, and stay a little while. And this is where Eleanor's handsome, cool uncle lives. It's his land. His name is Raymond. And pretty soon, all of Europe is talking about the affair that Eleanor is having with Raymond. Yikes. And that, oh yeah, they're getting it on. But I don't think that this is the case. I think this is Katie Holmes call your dad, but calling your uncle instead. And let me tell you why. See, you can't marry anybody in Europe at that time within seven degrees of affinity. So seven degrees of consanguinity. Okay. At least according to the church. But that rule is broken all the fucking time for old men to marry young girls that they're related to with a lot of inherited wealth and land. Right. Right. And I'm sure the higher up the nobility scale you go, the The less that rule fucking matters. Okay. As with all rules. That's it. So Eleanor is like, hey, before we take back off on this crusade, Raymond, maybe you need to know that Louie and I are super related and I hate him. And it's against the laws of the church. And maybe if you help me, we can get an annulment. Like never before has a woman tried to pull this stunt. And it won't be the last time, Eleanor, Mm. a woman of her own agency, will pull something like this. But hold on. So Raymond, let's have a little talk about him on the flip. He sees his brother, William X, did not quite leave him the land or power that he thought he so richly deserved from Hmm. his brother. So by helping Eleanor, he gets to make a power play too with her that, yep, if I help you do this and you get to this next stage, this is how I get what I want. Well, and so would the lands that had been signed over to Louis revert back to her family? Put a post-it note on that question. All right. Okay. So... These two reasons that I've provided. Some motivated thinking here is what I'm getting. Power. This is Mm -hmm. long-term chess. This is classic. We're thinking eight moves out with four different courses. Like this Mm -hmm. is, gosh, she's fucking genius. Okay. So those two reasons, her wanting to GTFO out of the marriage and finding a legal way that it can be done. And Raymond, knowing the power he would recoup make a lot more sense to me than I'm fucking my uncle. Yeah. But people are gossipy little shits. So that's what our podcast is about. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. So (laughs) there are power plays on both parts. And at this time, Eleanor's not successful. But she she pretty much gets clamped down and saddled on back to France, where she hangs out till 1151, has another daughter. Eleanor has a little bit more time to increase her resentment levels for Louis who cannot do anything right and make a new plan, which she does. Okay. Okay. So that's happening there. Meanwhile, over in England, there's a bucky new king, young, handsome Henry II. And in 1152, he shuffles on over to Paris for some peace talks to try to work out England's relationship with France now that his dad, Henry the First, has bit it. He's and have they already have they been fighting over Calais for a million years at this point? It's the since the dawn of okay. time. Yeah. I okay. mean, yeah, like the 
they're fighting. They're mm-hmm. going to continue to fight over the same lands for the next hundreds of years. Hundred. Okay. okay. So Henry comes over to negotiate in these Pattery peace talks, and Eleanor is still working her plan. Mighty taken by Henry young, the Second. Young dashing Henry. Young Bucky Henry the Second. And uh, by March of fifty two, she has her annulment so like this is this hold on that is too the king of france's marriage was annulled by the church hold the fuck up you don't even know this is the best annulment that has ever happened in the history of annulments that we are going to see from now to the end of the series because not only this is why no other annulment is ever going to be this good because of eleanor of aquitaine so not only is her marriage to Louis dissolved very easily this time because he wants to get the fuck out too. So where he contested it a few years ago and it was in, in no way possible. Right. It now is possible because he's like, I'm yeah, done with her. I actually don't like you either. Okay. <laughs> Next, their two daughters remain legitimate okay. because the marriage was made in good faith. Wow. And, oh, yeah, I guess I can give you back your titles and lands, too, that are yours by your birthright. So this really is best of all the worlds. Her this kids will are never protected. happen. Welcome to prenups. This will never happen in the history of the world ever again yeah. that anybody makes out this good. Because plan part one, successful. Plan part two, underway. Eight weeks and two days after the annulment is granted, 28-year-old Eleanor of Aquitaine has married a 19-year-old Henry II, and now Eleanor is queen of fucking England. I told you! What? So, wait, this is 52? This is 1152. And she married in 37. So she was the queen of France for a long time, for a decade and a half. queen of France for 15 years and... Now she had an eight-week a- break, shake it off, went to Cabo, you know, <laughs> shook shook that man right out of her hair. Enjoyed some wine. Enjoyed some wine, and two months later, she is now Queen of England. Good God. What the fuck? That is so improbable. Okay, okay so hold on. Mm-hmm. What this does is shifts the entire European balance of power to England. Oh, because she's got all this Her land. lands and titles are, are now, now Henry II's lands and titles. So France just got bitch slapped by England and has now become the largest power player land-wise in Europe. And half of France is now under control of the English and they've never had a battle. Oh my god! Like no sword's <laughs> been drawn. Like there's no lot. Like... It yeah. is just boom. Done. Here you go. Wow. The I wish that this were a more somber or maybe maybe a scary story cuz this ambiance like people listening on headphones are going to be loving. Wait, the, it's building. We're going to yeah, Okay. No, we're going to get there. Oh. You thought the story was good up to now. She's only 28. She's got 80 80 years. So. Just 60 more years to Thunder be a bot- and lightning, badass very, very bitch. Okay. Do you want to do the rest? No, that was all I wanted to do because okay. it's thundering outside. Nothing's plugged into the wall. We're perfectly safe. Until we're dead. 
with the wrath of the 12th century kings of England. Okay. Furies. <laughs> so Eleanor thinks like, hey, it's all about to be great. Let me get my hands on a new kingdom. But she hasn't met her new mother-in-law, Matilda. Adelaide and Matilda. Seriously? Yep. Like, that's straight Two out of... good names for cats there. Great. <laughs> okay. Great names for cats. So Matilda... <sighs> a few years ago, has tried to claim power in her own right over England. She is the daughter of a king. That king promised, that king made her heiress to England, and there's been a whole gah, fucking civil war about it in England for 40 years. But she doesn't end up ruling in her own right, but she guarantees the right of her son, Henry II, to rule. So now she has not only replaced mother of the king and consort because Henry II wasn't married. Now she's giving up consort title and she's Uh, not happy about it. Gotcha. She hasn't quite claimed the throne, but that throne is hers and she's just shuffling shit around for her kid or so she thinks. And now Matilda is going to be the queen and no one needs to pay any attention at all to Eleanor. But Eleanor is paying attention to her other job as a queen. Having babies, right? She does her duty. Right. Eight kids, 15 years. Lots of sons, daughters too. Eleanor has now been married to two kings of Europe. She is going to birth three kings of England and two daughters that will be queens in Europe as well. Her grandchildren are going to rule Europe for a long time coming. But let's just real quick make Louis VII a little angrier. Because he only had two daughters. Right, right. Ha ha. For Henry II, she has five kids in rapid succession. Like five kids, six years. This is Irish twins on steroids. Steroids. Yeah. William, Henry, Matilda, Richard, Jeffrey. The next nine years will bring three more children. Eleanor, Joanna, and her final son, John. So. Childbearing and keeping up with kids kind of keeps her busy. And old Matilda is fine with that. Like, I got you, boo. I'll right. just, you just, that's fine. I can sit in on She's still, meetings of the pretty yeah, council. not releasing any power to Eleanor as like queen in her own right. Right. But Eleanor does her job and she has babies and presents at court because that's your, that's how you do your rep. Well, and this was actually a, marriage for love ish right as opposed to her marriage to louis like i feel like there was can i say that maybe it changes why can't it be both well there's certainly none of these people can do anything that don't involve the polit none of the men can do anything that don't involve the politics of their kingdoms that's but, it right but it sounds like it sounds like she and Henry hit it off when he was over in Paris negotiating. Yeah. And... I don't know. I think it probably it shifts over time and it's both. Wait, 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 wait till you hear the end of the story. Okay. Okay. So Eleanor not handing, Eleanor not being handed any power, but she rolls along. Things go, you know, having babies and taking care of shit, appearing at court till about 1167. So Eleanor's in her early 40s, and her child-rearing age 
ages past. Mm -hmm. And Henry II is a notorious fucking adulterer. Sure. So he's like, all right. Hey, Eleanor, I know you've been itching. I know you've been wanting some power for a little while. How about you head on back down to Aquitaine? And you can rule in my name. And get you out of the way. Wait, literally, like, let's just get separate houses, dear. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Why don't you go back to your homeland? I know you miss it. I know you really like it. Mm -hmm. And there's some shit brewing over there. And I trust you're, you know, fine. And your job for me here is totally done. So why don't you go back home? I have two separate houses. And you just do your thing down there and keep keep my shit handled. Mead is a very different beverage than, than you know, wine from grapes so she probably did miss home do you want to open a bottle kind of we, we could i took him out of the fridge because it, it seemed like we weren't gonna so they're not cold but uh never mind cold meat's better be better okay we have champagne do you want to pour a drink from france so things rock and roll <laughs> on to about 1167 okay eleanor's in her early 40s and henry Sends her to govern Aquitaine in his name. Okay. Like, she can't have any more kids. Okay, so she's, all right, she's aged she's out of childbearing. And, aged okay. out. <laughs> uh, Henry II is a notorious adulterer. They all were, right. And well, were I mean, there, he's got mistresses, Were there right? any kings that we think were faithful? I will go on that quest. There's I, like one. Okay, yeah. I, it's not a trope. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Okay. okay, so Henry II is a notorious adulterer, and he wants to get her out of the way. And remember, it's perfectly fine for women to hold power as long as it is in the name of their husband right, or in right. the name of their son. Sure. That's what history has proven us to 1167. Right. Well, and that's what Matilda is clinging on to it's exactly even right. now. Like, in, done and done. in the name of her son, yep. she is wielding a lot of power. That's it. So Eleanor makes a triumphant return to Aquitaine. And this is the land of her people. And she's back in a high fancy court and she's in charge. And there are troubadours and chivalry in all the best of ways. And she is running the country like a badass. She's building up her own power base. Remember her move. Is her uncle still alive? Do you know? Yeah. Yes-ish. Okay. And he's still going to be an ally for a minute, but he's not coming he's, back into the narrative okay. I'm telling. Okay. I like it that you root for supporting characters. <laughs> I will give you a follow-up offline well, for him. I mean, again, like, so this territory is now controlled by England. And so if even if this guy has been ruling that territory, as soon as the Queen of England arrives, like, it's hers, right? So in that way, she would be unseating. It's just the whole thing. But what is on earth would make you think that she's the story? She has five sons. Oh. Are they not in London? Are they not in old oldie London town? They're all over the place in all the land that she... Wait for it. Wait. I hope, dear esteemed listener, that Stacy is really stepping in for you on this and acting as your representative, and you are just as... <gasps> well, I'm genuinely... Awestruck. I mean, like, she is empowered by the king, her husband, to yeah. rule in his stead, like... That's it. In his name, in not in his stead. His name. His name. Okay. She does this, and this next little bit I'm going to tell you about is one of the most recorded 
incidents and stories of the 12th century in literature. It's when she launches her own winery. No. Eleanor. This is when Henry II starts an affair with Rosalind Clifford. Rosamond. Rosalind, Rosamond. Apparently, she's the most beautiful woman in Europe. Like, all kings have affairs, but this is different. Henry is head over heels in love. And for as much as we don't know about Eleanor, Rosalind is described as the antithesis of Eleanor. She is, like, these are the words. She is exactly the opposite of everything Eleanor is. She is soft and kind and feminine. Oh, interesting. There's a whole line of subjecture there. Conjecture. Conjecture. Subjective conjecture. Ha ha. No, there that we could go into. Anyway, Henry and Miss Clifford conduct an affair for a long time. So... She's everything my current wife isn't, and Eleanor finds out, and she is really pissed. And there are a lot of recorded versions about what could have happened. There's one where Eleanor storms off to confront Rosamond at Woodstock, who runs out in the garden maze, but her dress gets caught, and Eleanor catches her, and she's like, listen, bitch, you can choose. Do you want to die by poison or dagger to the heart? And Rosamund in legend chooses poison or there's another legend like maybe she was dragged into the court under Eleanor's orders and like mocked she, regardless she flees to a nunnery and dies kind of a sad life but she fascinates writers for centuries are you serious yes Eleanor's about power and ambition sure and maybe she's just tired of not being able to use her political brain so she is happy to get on back to Aquitaine and do her shit. No fear. In this time, she ends up getting... So the first son, William, has died as like a child. Okay. Because it's, it's just very, a risk very of many common, Yeah, very common at the time. I mean, I don't mean to be callous, but let's... They didn't have vaccines and they didn't have soap. Like, <laughs> let's... Be like honest the, the, the deck was stacked against <laughs> them. Seriously. So she has gotten her next eldest son, who we're going to call Henry the Young, just to keep him unconfused with Henry the Second. Did you say Henny Youngman? Henny Youngman. Henny the Youngman. <laughs> yes. So he gets crowned as heir. Okay. Okay, to England. But she has these three other sons who are growing up and her like, uh, hey, why do we have to wait for power? Like, these plans that Dad has for us, Mom, are pretty cool with, like, the power and lands and titles we're going to get in the future, but it'd be really cool to rule something now in the meantime. So If we could get our inheritances before you die, that would be great. Well, I mean, it's, wait for it. So we, these sons are the male heirs of so much of Europe, and they are for sure Eleanor's biggest asset. And her husband, Henry, is never going to give up power willingly. So she's like, all right, I think I'm going to kind of back you. And there's some power plays where her son, Richard, tries to make some plays and Jeffrey's making some plays and doesn't go great for any of the boys or for her. The sons fail in their power bid. Like, they're not warring against their father, are yeah. they? Yeah. Oh, they are. Oh, Fuck yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. You, you needed to clarify that. So they launched their own little civil wars because yeah, yeah. this is 
I mean, this is how power transferred in England a lot. Well, like they had been promised lands, but they start to actively begin fighting for the lands that they were promised. I'm sure like they get to young adulthood and like, what the fuck am I doing? Cooling my heels in your court, dad. And Henry the second's like, (laughs) no, son, I don't think so. We're going to pull you back. Yikes. And uh, you can't have Scotland till you're 25. (laughs) Well, these are territories in France. These are little duchies. These are, you know, they want to open wineries. Henry. I want to joust for real. Okay. <laughs> so in 1173, Eleanor flees so out of Aquitaine. 50 now. Yeah. Okay. But she flees because Henry II is coming for her and the kids. And she hightails it back on up because she's going to go hide out with her ex-husband, Louis VII, for a while. What? Yeah. Well, because he definitely wants to help her hand over her lands to her sons and get them the fuck out of the hands of England, right? Okay. Of course. Come up here. I'll give you shelter. This is so bizarre. So let's lay down some facts. This is so bizarre. This is the late 12th century. I guess this is the advantage of staying friends with your exes. I actually have that written. <laughs> friends with all my exes. So, I mean, if you need shelter... You don't, there's a reason you broke up. We are never getting back together. Sure. There's a reason why you loved him and we can be civil and friends. Okay. So let's lay down some facts. Late 12th century. So many of these themes we are going to see over and over and over coming up through the trashy Tudor ride. But here we really do have a first of its kind. Eleanor, the first of her name. She's already pulled some magnificent plans before, but this is a little too over the top. So up to this date in history, there have been about 30 cases of how sons go against a father king in rebellion. It's a common trope. This is the first time in history a wife has openly rebelled against her husband. She is vilified. She is written about. She, it is recorded that she is a threat to the very fabric of society. She will be the cause of its general ruin. Rolling my eyes. And she's like, y'all can fuck right off because these are my kids and we're going to do this. So she rides north to participate in battle and or flee like it all happens. And she's captured disguised as a man in the fall of 1174. Her sons are also captured. And Henry II treats the kids much kinder. He ends up kind of settling, yeah, his patting kids. their heads, yeah. but not Eleanor. She is going to spend the next 15 years locked up in confinement. She is a 12th century Shelley Miscavige. Or a 12th century political prisoner. No, she's a political prisoner. She gets blamed for all the civil wars that have happened because even though she's locked up, It's the guys who can't stop fighting. Right. So even over the next 15 years, these sons are still going to make a play scot-free from blame because Eleanor, who's sitting in a fucking jail, is getting all the blame for it. Was she? Because my understanding is... She was. Really? Because when... All right. Because I feel like often when nobles were were imprisoned, especially for political reasons, um, there was still a household staff. They were at a nice country house they just couldn't leave and if there was any hint that they were participating in you know fueling the rebellion or whatever then they could perhaps be killed but um i mean she was lucky not to have been killed but he couldn't really kill her so he just locked her up has he met henry the eighth right 
she's kept like we don't even know where she was kept it was that oh, wow. hidden okay. for 10 years like we don't know what the hell happened in those 10 years but after 10 years i guess she's under control enough or broken enough or placated her captors long enough for henry to bring her out occasionally like not often but she'll come to court if he has a political advantage to make out of it he'd take her out dust her off and prop her up if like a few of his kids are going to be there that he needs to calm the waters between. That is so bizarre. I mean, I know it's crazy. Know, divorce was not a thing at the time. Okay, so let's take a little time hop back and talk about the West Wing. Because, I mean, the West Wing. Jed Bartlett's favorite film, referred to in the West Wing, is actually about our fair heroine, Eleanor of Aquitaine, in today's tale, The Lion in Winter. It's all about the events that are going to come next. Highly recommend you watch the movie. Super good movie. I'm going to give you the movie's description from the web. (laughs) It's Christmas 1183 and Henry II is planning to announce his successor to the throne. The jockeying for the crown, though, is complex. Henry has three sons and wants his boy, Prince John, to take over. Henry's wife, Queen Eleanor, who is played by Catherine Hepburn, has other ideas. She believes their son, Richard, should be king. As the family and various schemers gather for the holiday, each tries to make the indecisive king choose their option. Released in 1968, starring Peter O'Toole. I mean, Catherine Hepburn. Uh, I'll throw a clip of Jed Bartlett talking about Lion and Winter. It's a good movie if you need a visual narrative to round this out. Henry II does die. July of 1189. And because uh, Henry the Young has also died. Okay. So Richard actually is heir presumptive. Right. Richard, who becomes Richard the Lionheart, once he verifies that Daddy-O is really dead, he sends word immediately to release his mother, and she has control of the kingdom, and you are to do whatever the fuck she says. She is Beyonce now. She is Queen E. She is in charge. She is 65 years old. Good boy. And ruling England as a dowager queen, as well as a consort, because right now Richard isn't married, but he's about to be because she's going to arrange that and become that mother-in-law. So there's some bullshit that happens with her baby son, Spoiled John, and that shit goes pretty bad for a while, but he's the favorite and she gets it under control and marries Richard off. He's secured his secession because now that he's married and he decides to go on crusade because it didn't go because it went so great for her and her first husband. Yeah. Yeah. But now Eleanor really is in charge. She's she's the queen of England. Richard is there's no communicate like there's no. Yeah. He's off in the Holy Land. What we do may come back. He may not. Eleanor's queen of England. And she's killing it. Like, she's doing what she needs to do. And he goes on crusades, which sort of builds up his, you know, legendary reputation. Oh, sure, sure. But he has a hard time getting back. And when he does, he ends up getting captured in Austria. So that is a circuitous route. Not only is she ruling England, but she has to raise the ransom funds to get him released and get him home. I'm going to have you take a sip. I'm going to take a sip, and then we're going to put our drinks down, because I want you to know uh, the impact of this number is staggering. Okay. One million dollars. That's about it. 
Austria, the German Austrian jail he's in. Yeah. Wants a hundred thousand marks, which is a shit ton of money at the time. So I'm like, how much is that shit ton of uh, money at the time? Uh. So in my currency converter that I found, I can only go back to twelve sixty four okay. as the base year. That's really hilarious that it goes back that far. Okay. If you're looking in today's dollars for that hundred thousand marks in twenty nineteen, do you want to guess? Fifty billion. Double that plus ten million, a hundred and nine million smackaroos. Scallions. Hundred and nine million dollars. Hundred and nine million dollars. Million or billion? Million. Okay. Okay. What so did you say? I said fifty billion. Oh. Well then no. You're get out of the intergalactic. No, a hundred and nine million dollars. It's been eight hundred years. I'm thinking, you know. But a hundred thousand marks, like I don't know. Over eight hundred years. Yeah, I would guess billions, sure. You know what? No one cares about I wrote this story to impress you, but apparently it's unimpressable. $110 million. It's a good sum of money. Which she raises and gets him bounced out alive, which is kind of a fucking miracle. Yeah. So in 1199, 10 years later, like Richard gets back, does a great job as king until Uh he's fatally wounded with an arrow. Eleanor then secures the line of secession for her next son, John. And so when she's like 75... I was going to say, yeah, we're coming to the end of her. Yep, travels to support his reign. And if you would like the totally true story about Prince John, please watch 1973's Disney classic, Robin Hood. I was going to say, okay. It will give you all you need to know about him, and we hate him. (sighs) So after kicking all the power over to ensure John gains power... Mm -hmm. Eventually, Eleanor returns to her homeland, spending the life of her the last few years of her life in silence. She dies at the age of eighty or eighty-two, again depending on birth year, uh, on the thirty-first of March, twelve o four. She is laid to rest besides that ass-face Henry the Second and two of her children after a long, feisty, and rebellious life. Outlived both husbands and all but two of her ten children. She's one of the most powerful figures in all of Europe. A 12th century badass. I realize many of the monarchies of Europe were swept away in the last century or so. But like we're... Are her genes still running any countries in Europe? Oh, I don't know. Probably. I mean, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. You've got the current royal family related both on the mother's side and the father's side to Mary Boleyn and she's just the sister of Anne like yeah he wasn't even in the royal like maybe I wouldn't doubt it yeah interesting okay I gotta take a breath that was fun yeah 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 no that's that's a really amazing it's the saga of Eleanor of Aquitaine an amazing feminist life in a time when the 12th century when women well in the scape do that the scapegoating of her like that you know, oh, she this one this one woman's bad act will you know ruin the world as we the know, like fabric of society go fuck yourselves and invent democracy already like so what's happening next on trashy teeters next episode we're gonna do something really fun because we're calling it taking the high road over and around the war of the roses this is going to be a little bit of a reference for everybody in a fun and not boring at all way to skip through some of the bigger swatches of history that we're going to be doing. 
I want to make sure you have a solid backdrop so that when we do these deeper dives that are coming for you, you have a frame of reference in which to set these characters, so to speak. Uh, the spreadsheet lineup is lit, y'all. So stay tuned for War of the Roses overview. There will be another bonus, Trashy Tutors, this month that deep dives into a little bit of that that's just fun, uh, that I think you'll like. Oh, and one other thing. The Trashy Divorces Easy Peasy Book Club starts in July. So here's where it's tutor adjacent. The Easy Peasy Book Club is a new benefit for our $10 and up patrons. And the deal with the EPBC is that books less than 200 pages. Nothing too hard or time consuming, but the text will explore in some way what's happening within trashy divorces somewhere. Anyway, it's an easy book club for lazy and smart people, which yes, represent busy. Let's say busy people. For busy and smart people. There you go. See, this is why we're better together. So this month's book, Daughter of Time by Josephine Tay, is actually a little amazing mystery. Really is. Which delves into the princes in the tower, which will connect into that War of the Roses thing. So if you're interested in that true crime adjacent thing, check out The Daughter of Time by Josephine Tay. Happy to talk about it. Consider joining our little book club, too. It's going to be fun. That, my dear, is the 12th century badass. The bitch is back. That is an exceptional life. Eleanor of Aquitaine. And now I would like to read a book or maybe watch The Lion in Winter or something. Maybe we add that to our break this week. Lion in Winter. Okay. I haven't seen it in a long time. I don't but know if, if I ever have. Jed Bartlett loves it. Sure. Kay Hepburn. You can't go wrong with her. I mean, it's hard to see that there has not been a modern, a more modern um, film take on her like again that's an extraordinarily sort of feminist life at a time when certainly it predated well it was tampered down a lot we're not talking about that i mean she's got the woman who predates her matilda is kind of the baddest ass until then at least in the first century yeah no i read her wikipedia entry a while back and i i oh, agree Matilda's like, a badass extraordinary shitty yeah. mother-in-law but big badass yeah. i don't know it, it only gets more exciting from here but in this story we've laid yeah all these threads that are going to continue to come up in a way that again we're never going to see an annulment that good yeah that is yeah, the yeah. last time in history that's going to happen but son's making power plays and how does it shift and Land grabs. There's a Princess Bride quote about land grabs, right? Mm, never engage in a land war in Asia. Close enough. Mm, or England just, or France. I think I just burped into the microphone. Let's drink some wine. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. For tuning in and being our patrons. And thank you, everyone, for this crazy suggestion. Mm-hmm. I had an idea about Eleanor, but I didn't know... That she was that much of a badass. That's a cool story, though. Thanks like, for leading me down that rabbit hole. Married to the King of France and then to the King of England. Like, how unlikely is that? But there it is. 80 years? Killing it. Killing it. I hope you liked it. Right. And we'll, we need to learn how to end a show. We'll have uh, more soon. Keep it medieval. <laughs> Lock up your mother-in-law for 15 years now. <laughs> She probably cut that. Back soon. Here's you guys. Keep it trashy. <laughs>
Talk to you soon. <laughs> Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number. Thousands of people try to call. I talk to one of them. They stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number. Thousands of people try to call. I talk to one of them. They stay anonymous. I can't hang up. That's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous. Cheerio, Stacy. Cheerio. Good day, ma'am. Good day, mate. Welcome to... No. <laughs> Trashy tidbits for Thursday. Thursday. May... 30th. It's we my have, birthday. It is your birthday. Happy birthday, Stacey. Thank you. Um, I got you a present. You did get me a present. We got all of you a present for Stacey's birthday. Uh, how many more days to the beach? Let's just give a countdown so everybody knows. Fixing up my kayak to go to the beach. Okay. Gotta do some fishing when I get to the beach. And you guys thought I sang a lot. Okay. So this week you had prepared for us. A right. really special story. In my research on Princess Margaret, I came across this just long line of research that I didn't have time to fit in and naked pictures and a rob bank robbery oh, yeah. and MI5. And I'm like, damn, I want to know more about this and toss that thread over to you. you and did. you it got, pulled that thread. It got weird as fuck is what happened. Talk to me. So this thing basically, th- this is... This starts as the story of the Baker Street robbery, which was a 1971 bank heist in London, but it was a very unusual bank heist that has become sort of a story of legend. It's le- it's kind of legendary. Yeah, there's a bunch of myth making, or, or maybe not, I don't know, but there's there are all these like stories and so the Baker Street burglary, the Baker Street robbery. Yeah, oh, okay. But I realized. Because there is this allegation that somehow this is like an MI5 plot or that MI5, the British intelligence services, MI5, that somehow it was a plot by them or a cover up by them after the fact. And you know me, normally I hear conspiracy theories and I roll my eyes and I think, okay, whatever. Like, why would MI5? No, you came and asked for my phone. Uh, fun- Holy shit, did this go in a direction? Tinfoil hat. Let's right, do this. Let's do this. On do, the I night- need, do I need to get out my tinfoil hat? Well,. Okay, well, let me let me start by saying that <laughs> the robbery occurred the night of Saturday, September 11th, 1971. I'm pretty sure if you're a QAnon person and you hear September 11, you oh, know, you done. already know done. that this is part of a global conspiracy of something. Done. So probably, do we have a basement of, probably uh, Donald Trump is going to solve the Baker Street robbery. Do we have a sex ring basement? We might. In fact... Let me get out my trashy divorces bingo card. This gets a little upsetting even. Okay, so September 11, 1971, it's a Saturday. A group of Londoners overnight are engaged in a sort of surprising project. (laughs) Three months earlier, they had leased a leather goods shop on Baker Street, which is in central London. It's really close to um, that muse where Stephen Ward lived. Okay. Right around there. 
Okay, so they had leased this leather goods shop on Baker Street. Then they spent the ensuing three-month period tunneling down, presumably in the back of the store, down through the floor, and then south beneath the Chicken Inn restaurant until they arrived at the exterior wall of the vault of the Baker Street branch of Lloyd's Bank of London. Oh my God. Initially, they tried to cut through the wall using a tool called a thermal lance, which I had to Google, and it's pretty much what it sounds like. It's a rod that heats up. It'll bore through steel. Oh my God. It's a hot stick. Is that a thermal lance in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> it is a hot stick that will bore through steel. But that didn't work for them. And, oh, they just had to use some explosives to knock through the wall into the vault of Lloyd's Bank on Baker Street in the middle of the night. No bigs. In oldie London town. School no- Did anybody hear that? Apparently not. Well, it was so far underground? I guess that's all I can guess maybe maybe at the time maybe it's like in a commercial district so there weren't really residential i don't know deserted area i don't know so this is all vaguely reminiscent i know where the robbers got this idea is this is the gunpowder plot with guy fox Uh, they ended up renting out a space underneath parliament just a general storehouse where they're putting in all of their explosive shit like it's there's a similar repetition Go ahead. Interesting. And nobody, um, how how far underground? I'm not sure. Like enough to not be heard. Enough to not be heard. Wow. Okay. Also, there, so there's some weird stuff here. One, these are all like two-bit criminals. Okay. These are not criminal masterminds. So it was very confusing to police when they learned that, for instance, the group was using walkie-talkies to communicate, which it was sort of a newer technology and I think technically not legal in the UK at the time. Okay. Like for, I'm sure, I'm sure the police could have them, military, all that. But anyway, they had a guy on the roof acting as a lookout, unknown to them, nearby on Wimpole Street. A ham radio operator named Robert Rollins was he he was messing around with his ham radio and inadvertently accesses their channel around. I fucking love accidents in history. Yeah, one of my favorite thing. 11:15 p.m. He's hearing this bank robbery going down. He calls the police, and they're like, "What are you talking yeah, about, dude? They completely blow him off. They're like, "You know you what? You have a what kind of communication channel to the aliens? Why don't you just? How about you just record that for us, and you know we'll get back to you." If oh we, my god, uh, they blow him off. Blow him off. Oh my god. So around one a.m., this thing is still going on, and perhaps around one a.m. is when the explosives happen. I'm oh. thinking because he calls Scotland Yard. He's like the ham okay. radio operator. Yeah, Rollins. He's like. Holy shit. So he calls Scotland Yard, which promptly dispatches officers to his home. And at 2 a.m., radio detector vans are sent out to try to, like, triangulate. Mm-hmm. It's like an episode of 24. And, Dink. And, like, Dink. I guess the Met. Is that what the London police are Metropolitan called? Metropolitan police. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I guess they order the Met to do a bank-to-bank search covering a 10-square-mile area trying to find these robbers. Which was overkill because Rollins kept saying, look. They're right this, here. Yeah, this technology, like they're within a mile of me. I know it. And they were for sure. So they ended up searching, I don't know, 750 banks that oh, night. Jesus Christ. They did search Lloyd's on Baker Street. And they went down 
to the door to the vault and the door was closed and completely intact and everything was secure. Nothing was They didn't come in from the front. They came in from the back. Right. So they never would have known. The thieves were on the other side of the 15 inch thick door. Right there. When when they came in. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. So they left without opening it. Meanwhile, on the other side of that door, the thieves were using crowbars to pry open more than 260 safety deposit boxes belonging to some of the UK's upper crust. Okay, so the haul that they made off with is thought to be worth about 40 million pounds in in today's pounds. I wrote today's dollars, but obviously that's dumb. I mean, are they looking for jewels, money, stocks, bonds? Which, theoretically, they found all of. Cash. Let me ask you a question. I don't know if you know this, so we can cut it, but how did the gang of cut rate robbers do you know get clued into this is the place to go is that coming up no because i mean it's all there's no explanation there's no explanation that's ever been given by them but like they they all went to they got caught they went to jail for a few years they got out no money was ever recovered nothing was ever recovered from this crime huh they took off with they think 40 million pounds worth of Stuff. stuff Plus all kinds of documents. I mean, people store birth certificates in safe deposit boxes. They, you know, they store all kinds of things, jewels, tiaras. Anyway, in truth, the extent of their haul is not known because the contents of the safety deposit boxes were obviously private to their owners. And never been found. Well, and apparently many of those owners never came forward to report what they had been. Mm stolen what had been stolen from them the thieves just as a final twist i don't know they wrote on the wall of the vault before they left let's see how sherlock holmes solves this one it's <laughs> beautiful okay so it's really okay so the robbery itself has become the stuff of legend because of its sheer audacity the men involved were small-time crooks with marginal day jobs and no history indicating that such a complex well-planned and lengthy i mean this took months to put into practice this lengthy heist uh was something that they could accomplish police wondered where they'd found the money for the for a thermal lance or how they'd managed to procure radios and explosives yeah hot sticks ain't cheap more importantly who had masterminded this the man who leased the leather goods shop, um, he's either Desmond Wolf or Benjamin Wolf, I've seen in both, used his real name when oh he God. signed the lease for the sure. leather shop. So, you know, the next day the police are like, knock, knock, um, do you have do you, do you have the lease on the leather shop on Baker Street? And he's like, of course I do. And so he's arrested. Oh, my God. Uh, but not, a, not exactly a mastermind of anything, nor were the other guys, uh, Anthony Gavin, Thomas Stevens, and Reginald Tucker... The last three pleaded guilty, were sentenced to 12 years. Two of them got it knocked down to eight. Wolf pleaded not guilty. He got eight. There were a couple of other people tried for like margin, like handling banknotes from it. But again, the police never recovered any banknotes from it. So they were acquitted. So those seem like awfully lenient sentences for a crime of that magnitude, not having recovered any of those assets. I, I mean, I think that the criminal justice system in the UK is less punitive than ours and was at the time, too. Although I think when you go back a little bit further, you've just got bobbies beating the shit out of people with nightsticks. So it's it all. wouldn't have anything to do with MI5 coming in and shutting the whole thing fucking down. Like, we'll, well give you a lighter sentence. That is a supposition, certainly. 
So yeah, nothing from the crime was ever recovered by police. Once released, the robbers lived quiet, but apparently very comfortable lives. They appeared to have quite a bit of money. It is said only one purported member of the gang has ever spoken publicly about it, a man named Brian Reeder. And again, he wasn't prosecuted at the time, so it's possible he's just bullshitting here and wasn't part of it at all. But he says that he was part of the crew and that when they were down there, they found pictures in the vault of prominent political here we go, figures here we go. Who, who, who? sexually abusing children. <gasps> And he says that they made sure to scatter those pictures all over the floor so that the police could not miss them. The police could not pretend they had not seen photographs of prominent British political figures molesting children. So these are like good guy robbers. If they find shit, they're not taking it to take it and blackmail it. They're leaving it littered on the floor? This is one potential story. Okay. Um, And so, yeah, this is a fine jumping off point to talk about the theories that have evolved around the Baker Street robbery. So most of these theories hinge on... um, what they hit compared to what they could have hit. Presumably there's a vault full of cash as well in the building. That's okay. not what they went to, oh. right? They did they t- did a pretty elaborate entry and presumably could have entered a different room if they wanted to. I mean, like, how do you know which vault to go to when you break into Gringotts? It's a question. Right? The robbers didn't appear to be interested in cash, but in secrets, the types of documents one might file away in a bank vault, the types of valuables one might tuck there. There's a 2008 movie starring Jason Statham, Statham, State, whatever. It's called the called the Bank Job. Oh, okay. Some actor. Dude, dude. Bank Job is one of my very favorite songs by Bare Naked Ladies. There you go. There you go. Okay, so the bank job, for instance, gives us the theory that MI5, Britain's famed intelligence service, hired the gang and put the plan together in order to retrieve pornographic pictures of Princess Margaret. Oh. Perhaps in a compromising position with one of several underworld figures she was known to entertain at her Caribbean island compound on Mystique, which I think she named Port Debauchery, but you have a weird pronunciation for it. <laughs> Le... La Jolie, La Jolie Zoo. Yeah, I think you're saying it wrong. I think it's called Port Debauchery. I thought it was called Princess Cougar Sex Island Party House. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Princess Cougar Sex Compound. Okay, (laughs) I would call it one of those things anyway. So the theory is that these pictures would be damaging to the royal family or, or worse, like could, you know, I think there's always, there's a tension. Do you remember when people had shame once upon a time? It was so long ago. Go ahead. I'm ashamed at how long ago it was. Okay, it could be damaging to the royal family or or who knows. Could be right. worse in some way. And MI5 wanted these pictures out of the vault so that they could not be used as blackmail material. The idea here is that over the years, the eclectic circle that Margaret entertained included some sketchier figures like this actor slash bodyguard slash gangster named John Dennis, John Dennis Benden, with whom she allegedly had an affair. And it seems like her, uh, her biographer believes the affair happened. Benden bragged about it. Oh, they're so photographed. They had a great time Mm -hmm. on Mustique. Mm -hmm. He caused many, many problems for her. Mm -hmm. And you're going to talk about his nickname, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So, Binden was acquainted with Christine Keeler of uh, Profumo oh, yeah. Affair fame. He seems to have visited Mystique at least twice, 
once in 67 or 68 after his acting debut, and then again after 68 when he went with his girlfriend, socialite Vicki Hodge. Which is how he met Princess Margaret at a luncheon. And but I, he'd already been to Mustique. Sure, but he met Princess Margaret at this. I did some research on this, okay. and apparently, we're going to talk about Margaret being annoying AF, Apparently, John Bender is the funniest person that has ever walked the face of the planet. Interesting. All of his friends are like, you had to walk away from him just to catch your breath. He was just uh, debaucherous and kind of a rowdy sense of humor, a very rakish sense of humor. He'd really walk on the edge. And for some reason, Princess Margie was like a, very much like a man's... Yeah, man. yeah, that seemed clear from the and pictures. There was something in the way that he was able to skirt the line of inappropriate with Princess Margaret that she really dug. Like they instantly sort of fell for each other, and he was apparently just a fucking rogue and was as inappropriate as can be, and she delighted in it. Yeah, I mean, in reality, like her husband Tony was an incredibly transgressive figure when they met. Sure. So she may just be into that. Yeah. I mean, but he clearly stepped over protocol all the time with her and she didn't seem to mind. And there may have been a reason. Well, let's talk about one of his uh, cool party tricks that apparently would delight the fuck out of her. So this dude was known as Five Pint John, not because he could pack away the beer, although I'm sure he could pack away the beer, but because his favorite party trick was hanging five pint glasses off of his allegedly enormous dick. She apparently loved it. He was also known as Big John for the same reason, but I feel like that doesn't really capture the zest here. No, five pints. Five pints. Back to the theory. The theory is that underworld figure Michael X, real name Michael... Michael DeFrate, okay, a Londoner engaged in all manner of misconduct, drugs, slumlording, somehow gets his hands on compromising pictures of Margaret from Mystique. Ooh. These were, the story goes, his insurance policy against being prosecuted in England for his various gangster activities. Right. In 1971, shortly after the Baker Street robbery, DeFrate left England for his native Trinidad, where he ultimately was hanged for murder in 75. Yikes. But apparently he was supposed to be prosecuted in England for extortion in 71, but they just let him leave. Let him go? Okay. Robbery was over. It's I mean, interesting. If compromising material, they're probably going to let you the fuck out of the country. Well, once they've gotten the compromising material sure. from you That's and you have nothing. That's a really good trade. So, yeah, I don't find this theory super compelling except there is this one detail that really is there is an mi5 file on differte on michael x this mm-hmm. guy supposedly this file is classified until 2054 Whoa. which will be 79 years after his death so like think about it let's say he was a cooperating something or another with mi5 or with mm-hmm. the police or something and they wanted to make sure that like none of his family would ever be harmed by if he left a pregnant wife or girlfriend, that kid would like be 78 years old at the time. Like, I think they're safe. I think no, they're that's a sa- hundred years. I mean, that's three full generations yeah. of hopefully nobody will ever come looking for this shit. Yeah, it's really weird. It, it just, it's a, it seems like an extremely long classification period. No, yeah, you put a hundred years of 
restriction. I mean, that's the JFK files. Yeah. There's plenty of stuff that's still yeah. sitting there that won't be seen till whatever, 2035, 2054. Yeah. I guess the idea is that maybe some underworld figure, Bindon perhaps, because he, Bindon really was also kind of a gangster and racketeer. Oh, a lot of that. Not there kind was a of. A lot of that going on. Totally a gangster. Yeah. Yeah. So perhaps Bindon somehow gets in trouble with DeFrateos and money, something like that, gets shaken down. And is like, okay, you know, can't pay that debt or whatever, but I do have these pictures that are probably more valuable than anything else I could, Interesting. like, I think that's the theory. And then DeFrate De puts them in his safe deposit box, which again, I don't know that he had one. I think there's a whole lot of supposition happening here. Sure. So another theory, uh, which goes back to Brian Reeder's comments that they found evidence of prominent government or even royal figures engaged in child sex abuse. There are at least two ways to look at this if you're in the MI5 orchestrated the heist or the cover-up club. One is that MI5 could gain leverage over politicians with blackmail material that would not only end their career, but put them in prison. So MI5 gets more powerful. I mean, that's a pretty good theory. Sure. Two, MI5 may have been dispatched to cover up evidence that could have destroyed the British government. And the reason I feel like this is more likely is because, in fact, that had already happened a few years earlier. So, first of all, the reason MI5 is implicated in all of this is that for a number of years, journalists have reported that they, after the robbery in 71, they received what is called a D-notice from the British government, which is a, it is a request not a legally binding order, but it's a request that you don't report on a particular event, okay. usually for national security reasons, but it could also be that they didn't want the robbers to know that the robbery had been discovered, so the sure. police could go round them up and they wouldn't scurry. So when I think denotice, I can kind of think like delay. We're not saying don't publish yeah. it, just don't publish it now, just yeah. to delay. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So it... Uh, it took like 36 hours for the first reports to come out. And I think by then everyone had been arrested. So, you know, mission accomplished. Yeah, these are not masterminds. Yeah. Uh, reporting. Oh, so the Wikipedia page for the robbery says that there is no record of a D-notice being issued during this time. Oh. But the journalists who covered it are like, no, there totally was. There was. So, you know, and that, I mean. It's all very shady. MI5 could erase the records, right? I mean, it's it's when you get into this is why I struggle with conspiracy theories, because like if MI5 has magical powers to make stuff go away, why do they need to rob a bank at all? Why don't they just go in and get the shit they want? Okay, moving on. Do do do. Okay, so when I started digging into like the misbehavior of British politicians, because I was like, I was thinking about the Comet Pizza thing, like Pizzagate here in the mm -hmm. US and just this sort of longstanding, because in Britain, there really is a longstanding thing that there is like an elite pedophilia ring yes like i've heard of this my entire adult life. i mean not mm. heard but i've heard rumblings of sure you know that that there is this view that the elites are so elite engaged in some dirty dirty deeds so i was thinking about jeffrey, jeffrey epstein. epstein yeah and our labor secretary who gave him a sweetheart deal which could have been totally proper based on i don't know and but president and maybe prince andrew and yeah no, i forget Bill Clinton. who i was yeah talking to you in another tinfoil conspiracy hat, probably drunk conversation party, but whoever it was was making the case like the world is run by pedophiles. Yeah. It, you just don't know it. And you get glimpses of it, but let me let me okay. tell you about one. Mm, okay. Okay. So when I started digging into the misbehavior of British politicians, the extent to which the country's partisan media environment 
enables cover-ups is actually really shocking, and particularly in this time period. Perhaps even now, I don't know, but it is one thing for reporters to leave people alone about extramarital affairs between consenting adults, but it seems like the press there really will, or has in the past, covered up pedophilia rings if a paper's allegiance is to the party it's butting up against. Catholic Church, yo. There you go. That's true. There. Perfect church. Perfect example. Okay. For our purposes, let's go back to Five Pint John Benden, who starred opposite Mick Jagger in 1970s performance and who was tied to mid-century London terrors, the Cray Twins. These guys were Mm -hmm. like gangsters. So in the 1960s, they apparently spent much of their time when they weren't running their nightclubs and engaging in racketeering and shooting people to death and stabbing people to death. And it's a Tuesday, yo. They were supplying young men, I do not know how young, to a politician from the Conservative Party by the name of Robert Lord Boothby and a member of Parliament of the Labour Party named Tom Dryberg. One of the Cray twins was bisexual, so he was finding rent boys from all over East End. I mean, if you just sent Philip a little mask, he probably would have done it for you for free. Philip might have been there, but that's what I'm saying, like... With Boothby, there Boothby knew there were pictures. Mm. Like Boothby ultimately was blackmailed. These guys did end up going to prison and basically dying in prison. But it took okay. years because they the government. Okay, allegations about Boothby were known in like conservative media circles, but no one would publish because you don't want to. If your newspaper publisher is you know aligned with the conservative party, you're not going to take out a prominent conservative politician. Sure, but now this dude's lined up with both sides of the fence. Right. So that's, yeah, the craze that, yeah, they mm-hmm. cultivate. I think they actually got the labor MP first and through him ended up with, with Boothby in the mix. So you're puppet master and everybody. Yeah. Why not? Bipartisan support. But it really, it worked. Okay, in 1964... This, the year after the Profumo affair, the general election is a few months off, and conservatives were, of course, badly weakened by the Profumo affair. The Sunday Mirror, which is a labor mouthpiece, ran a piece insinuating a relationship between one of the Cray twins and Boothby. This was shut down by labor. Whoa. The labor party knew that this would sweep up their member of parliament, Tom Dryberg, who was sort of high up in the party. They knew that he was gay, he ran with the Cray brothers, and he ran with Boothby. And so, like, the Labor Party leaders go to this labor-aligned newspaper, and they're like, make it stop, shut it down, end it. The paper publishes, like, a front-page apology to Boothby, fires the editor that published the article in the first place, even though he had a photograph and he had a report from Scotland Yard that it was true that Boothby was basically hooking up with rent boys all the time crazy town boothby sued and uh the mirror paid him forty thousand pounds whoa yeah okay so this obviously forestalled other papers from bothering to investigate the cray brothers who really were terrors i mean okay these guys apparently somebody at some point told one of them like oh looks like you put on some weight and he like cut the guy to pieces oh my god like pulls out a knife and just goes to tell like he these are terrible people they yeah they're committing murder they're busting people out of prison they're committing armed robberies arsons they're running protection rackets they're beating the shit out of people all the time and they've got these nightclubs running where famous people society people are coming in studio 54 Yeah. yeah so they were able to cultivate their own protection the police 
Finally, in 1968, Scotland Yard would not help with the investigation of the craze, by the way, on orders of the government. So it takes police years to shut these people down, but wow. they go to jail in 68. So Hey, that's cray-cray. That's cray-cray. <laughs> but I mean, they go to jail in 68. The Boothby thing was in 64. Fleet Street knows that the Boothby thing is real. So yeah, like that's the thing. Reporters, they can't say a lot of stuff because of the libel laws, again, but they all know it's true. 68, these two guys get swept up, finally removed from, you know, London town. But then in 71, you've got this mysterious heist with mysterious stuff going missing and all sorts of like oddities around when and how it can be reported Mm -hmm. and like who funded this and just all of these questions. And it's really not a surprise that that would become a source of real mythology. Anyway, that's the... Okay. It's the Baker Street robbery. That's a really, really good story, but I have on my tinfoil conspiracy hat. When don't you? All All right. right. So my fashionable and functional tinfoil conspiracy hat. Hit me with your Here's the addendum to that story. Yeah. The pictures on Mustique of Princess Margaret and uh, Johnny Five Pints. Sure. Where he's wearing a Enjoy Cocaine shirt. I saw the picture. Come out like in the mid 70s and... Here's my here's my conspiracy connection spiderweb. I don't know how John Bender fits into this, but 1978 he was arrested and to be tried for attempted murder. Attempted murder. I, I couldn't remember if it was attempted or murder. And something shady happens that he's acquitted and let go. Yeah. The, the and the supposition is right. Yeah. He dangled Margaret. Interesting. On his little fishy hook. Yeah, the Cray brothers got acquitted. On his hot stick. Ha <laughs> ha. But yeah, apparently Boothby helped smooth some something and got them acquitted in, in one trial before they were eventually nabbed. for. And then Boothby sh- stood up and, okay, this was, love. I watched a documentary about this because I was up at five this morning. So they get arrested and Boothby who is being blackmailed by them because they've got a lot of pictures of him in a lot of compromising positions, gets up in Parliament or gets up in the House of Lords and basically says that the government needs to interfere in this trial and is shouted down because it is unconstitutional for the legislative branch to interfere in the judicial branch. (laughs) It was very heartening to hear that once upon a time, everyone understood that the legislative branch should not interfere in the workings of the judicial branch. No, I think this is a really good... How far we have come. ...representation of our um, top lesson of Trashy Divorces is what is past is prologue. There's always historical precedent. There's nothing new under the sun. Don't rob banks, y'all. I mean, or if you do, make sure that loot stays hidden for when you get out of jail. What a mess. Thank you. That was a good... You're welcome. That I, was a I, good... We unraveled, I know that, unraveled that Yeah, story. I know that went in directions. But so if this had really come out in 64, again, this it was Boothby. It was the conservative lord who was caught up in it. But after Profumo, also of the conservative party, it just it seemed like it would have maybe ended the conservative party as a concern for a number of elections, but because the liberals had their own, again, dude, 
closets are terrible. Like when people can live openly, then you don't have to play these games. Yep. And the libel well, laws make it tricky. That can be held over your head. Right. You know what? You can never like call out everything bad I've done because I own it and I claim it and you can't hurt me with it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is some trashy, <laughs> trashy Baker Street bank job nonsense, Stacey. Thank you. I have no for idea. For filling I mean, my head with all those conspiracy theories. I've got so much to think about now. It seems reasonable to me that the Cray brothers may have handed off their blackmail material to somebody on the outside. Oh, for sure. Who may have stored it in that bank vault. For fucking sure. Yeah. That's really, that just seems more, because they're both in prison by then. Yeah. So that's what seems most likely to me is that the Cray brothers had their shit in there. Oh, give me a little while. I'll solve this one. You got a conspiracy. I'll solve it. Ice Ice Baby. Y'all have a great week. We'll talk to you next time we'll from the Sunday. beach. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll be at the beach on Sunday, but the episode will have been recorded prior. Don't ruin the magic. Magic. <laughs> Bye. Bye, y'all. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all. <laughs>